The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. And this is the History of the World podcast, unscripted. Welcome once again to the History of the World podcast, Unscripted, with me, Chris Hasler. And this is an unscripted episode, which means it's outside the normal boundaries of a History of the World podcast regular episode. So the History of the World podcast is split into volumes where we uh, we cover a period of history within that volume. So the first uh, volume was the prehistoric world, the second was the uh, was the ancient world, and the third was the classical world, and then we're going to be moving forward to the medieval world in volume four, but we're taking a short break at the moment, but in the meantime, we're publishing these unscripted episodes, and in some of them, we're offering you uh, spoilers for the, for the next volume, but in other ones, we're focusing on things that maybe we didn't go into in enough detail during volume three. So this week... I've chosen to look at the 12 Olympians of Greek religion. And here they are. Zeus. Zeus, of course, we've mentioned him so many times already. He is the the main man. He's the, the father and protector and ruler and the king of all gods and humans. Um, he's uh, he's a controller of the weather, the sky, and uh, he uses thunderbolts and lightning as his main weapon. Um, he's the chief Greek deity, the god of the sky, and um, he's uh, the father to many of the other uh, Olympian gods as well. So uh, he's very, very influential, very important indeed. The the Olympic Games themselves are in honour to Zeus and. Uh, he may be uh, connected to the Roman god Jupiter and the Hindu god uh, Josh. Um, uh, their names are very similar, thought to have a, an Indo-European connection of, of some description. Um, and uh, he he was a bit of a he was a bit of a lad. He certainly didn't believe in having just one carnal relationship. His uh, his most famous wife was Hera. Um, who um, probably was not best pleased with his antics um, and uh, he can be considered as the most powerful of all the gods and, and in some cases referred to as the most powerful of all the Greek gods um, put together and um, he but he, he certainly isn't in, he certainly isn't um, undefeatable let's say so um, unlike the all-powerful god of maybe Abrahamic religions, uh, Zeus was seen as fallible, even though he was very powerful. Hera. Hera, or Hera, sometimes you hear her called Hera, um, is, uh, is, is the, probably the most legitimate of all of Zeus's wives. And uh, he... Um, he he was not uh, particularly faithful to her and Hera was not best pleased about this. Hera herself is referred to as the queen of the gods and she represents all women 
um, but her 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 story and her, her character is portrayed as that very much of a jealous wife who uh, couldn't deal with Zeus's uh, philandering ways and um, and she's known to be quite hard about her attitude towards that and uh, she she can be uh, portrayed as very manipulative as a consequence very conniving if Zeus had children by another woman um, Hera would not show a great deal of regard um, or positive regard I should say for for those women or their offspring the Greek hero Heracles was a son of Zeus, but certainly not the son of Hera. And uh, Hera um, really didn't like him at all because of it and uh, and even tried to to dispatch snakes to bite him and, and all sorts of weird and wonderful things in order to, uh, to hurt uh, those uh, offspring of Zeus that were not uh, born from her womb. Now, the son of Zeus called Dionysus was mothered by a woman called Semele. And uh, there is a story that exists that uh, Semele was, was turned to ash because uh, Hera um, insisted that Zeus uh, come before her in his full glory. And, uh, and uh, as a result, she was turned to ash. Dionysus. Now Dionysus was the son of Zeus and Semele, but he was uh, he was one of the twelve uh, Olympian gods, and he was the god of wine. And uh, a lot exists about Dionysus that um, really relates to his followers and the, the way that they worship Dionysus uh, with these uh, radical rituals in which they're, they're almost like this crazy mad frenzy where they just drink themselves into a stupor and then, you know, take the, part of the festivity will be to tear apart a wild animal um, in, in, in sort of this crazy fit of rage, perhaps. I, I, I don't know how best to describe it, but there, there's this kind of frenzied behaviour in his followings and these strange rituals associated with him, especially um, a cult among many women where they would just um, disappear off into the hills and get blind drunk, and that was seen as uh, the best way to observe this deity. You can sometimes see him referred to as Bacchus. Hermes. Hermes was the messenger of the gods, very much, uh, very much an equivalent to Mercury in the Roman pantheon. And uh, Hermes, we can see mentioned quite a lot in Homer's works uh, in relation to the the siege of Troy and the and the Trojan Wars, etc. And um, we see him as. Uh, the uh, the the sort of the the guiding um, the guidance for the for the travellers and uh, also uh, in terms of spiritual sense he uh, he was able to travel between the the normal world and the uh, the world of the deities and also be able to escort people from uh, life to the afterlife um, so his role in the pantheon was very important indeed. He's mainly seen as an escort in uh, in works such as the Iliad, so he's he's very much in 
in terms of sending messages, relaying messages, travelling with people and, and escorting people from one place to another successfully. We often see Hermes represented with these winged sandals or a winged helmet uh, you know, to, to represent his ability to travel. Hermes was fathered by Zeus, but this time it was by uh, a nymph called Maya who was his mother. Demeter. Demeter, much like Hera, was also a sister and a consort to Zeus. And uh, just like Hera and Zeus, uh, her parents were uh, Cronus and Rhea. Now, she was the goddess of agriculture and goddess of the harvest. So she was very much celebrated at harvest time. And with uh, the harvest and the yield and uh, agriculture, fertility of that nature, the seasons and time itself would have been very, very relevant um, to that aura of Demeter. And um, as such, she was seen as like the goddess of the cycle of life and the cycle of time and death and that kind of thing. Apollo. Apollo was a twin son of, uh, of Zeus and Leto. And uh, he was a god of music and of healing and disease, which um, is, is quite interesting, actually. He's, um, with him being a, a god of healing, um, should he be uh, upset, he would be quite happy to rain uh, arrows um, of, uh, of of poison, poisonous arrows down on his enemies, um, and um, this uh, lends itself to the the bow being one of his symbols. Um, Apollo has cult centres at, at the island of Delos, which of course was uh, the original home of the Delian League, which uh, could be uh, synonymous uh, with the Athenian Empire. Uh, from the from the days of uh, going into the uh, the Peloponnesian Wars, and uh, also another place where he was uh, he was quite important and a cult centre was um, at uh, Delphi, which um, was the, the obviously the place of the the Pythia, who was the oracle of Delphi, who was very uh, highly regarded as a, as a, a spiritual advice giver to all of the Greek peoples. Artemis. Apollo's twin was his sister, Artemis. And uh, she was, she's described as a virgin goddess. And as such, she's, uh, she's like a goddess to young women um, and uh, virgin women. And, and also the, uh, the, sort of the, the goddess of, of childbirth or women going into childbirth, if you like. So... Um, she was uh, she was actually spotted. Um, she was spotted uh, bathing uh, by a man called Actaeon, who um, who was uh, she was horrified that she'd been seen like with unclothed uh, by Actaeon, and as such, uh, she turned him into a stag, and he was um, he was torn apart by his own dogs. Um, so, um, so much. So, next time you're going past the lake, just make sure you don't um, spy on anyone, uh, any 
any virgin women bathing is is my advice uh, but as such also i mean in terms of the stag reference she's also the the goddess of wild animals and uh the hunt so uh, she's very very important um in the, in the pantheon of olympian deities uh as a consequence of that we did also mention her um, when we went through the, the unscripted episode of the Seven Wonders of the Ancient World as well. Um, she was uh, the deity uh, uh, that was uh, that had the temple built for her in Ephesus, the Temple of Artemis, which was seven wonders, uh, one of the Seven Wonders of the Ancient World. Hephaestus. Hephaestus was certainly a son of Hera, and debatably a son of Zeus, although he's uh, he had a somewhat of a physical deformity, which was quite unusual of the Olympian gods, who were who were always portrayed as the the epitome of perfection uh, physically. Uh, Hephaestus apparently was not of of that kind, and uh, he was certainly a bit of an outcast because of it. And um, you know, perhaps if he was Zeus's son, um, Zeus might have indeed sort of said well no that's not my son he can't be my son because of his deformities but uh, nonetheless um, whether he was or he wasn't he was still uh, very much uh, valued or, or valuable to the uh, to the Olympian gods for the fact that he was a, a smith and uh, certainly a blacksmith and, and as such he would he would craft the weapons of the Olympian gods uh, as well, so um, very much an important part of the pantheon. His wife was Aphrodite, uh, but um, he, Aphrodite was not um, was not loyal to him uh, in their in their marriage. Uh, she would uh, be having an affair with Ares, who um, was um that well basically Hephaestus caught them at it and uh, and shamed them in front of the other Olympian deities Aphrodite Aphrodite was the goddess of love and she was also the patron of prostitution which did lead some to believe that it would validate prostitution as uh, a uh, surely if a if a, an Olympian goddess was um, a patron of that, then it, it should surely be acceptable. But uh, that that is strongly debated uh, even since those times. Um, nonetheless, um, she, as we mentioned, she was quite um, she she was a, a quite quite the, the lady really. She didn't really think a lot of uh, of uh, having other lovers outside of her marriage to uh, Hephaestus. And um, notably, Ares was was the the man who was caught with her, um, and uh, when she was shamed in front of the other Olympians. Um, however, she's also a very very important part of the story that um, that begins the the Trojan War in in certainly in um, Homer's epics. Um, she and Hera and um, it was also Athena were trying to um, convince Paris that they uh, that each of them were the, the most beautiful woman uh, in the world. So uh, that that really was the the instigation of the the Trojan War 
um, that, that series of events. Aphrodite is um, is the the daughter of Zeus and Dione, uh, but uh, that is only in Homer's uh, epics that she's described that way. In in, in other um, in in Hesiod's uh, in works, he describes Aphrodite as the product of uh, Cronus um, throwing Uranus's genitals into the sea. Um, make of that what you will. Ares. Now, when Ares was uh, was shamed uh, alongside Aphrodite uh, by Aphrodite's hus- husband Hephaestus, uh, the the Greek gods and goddesses were really not um, in in any way favourable towards Ares in any case because he was the god of war, and as such. He was uh, certainly viewed upon as as someone uh, as somewhat of aggressive character and and someone with a very sort of bloodthirsty attitude and really not uh, the kind of peaceful kind of god or goddess that someone might uh, prefer to to honour. And um, what we do know about Ares is that he fathered um, four children by Aphrodite, uh, even though she was married to Hephaestus. But in a positive aspect, I suppose, that he's, as the god of war, he was seen as someone with the kind of valour that would be, um, or the qualities that would make him a successful warrior, the, the physique and, and the, and the met- mental attitude to be a successful warrior. He was the son of Zeus and Hera. Athena. Now, as Ares was the god of war, Athena was the goddess of war, but she was also the goddess of wisdom, which sort of lends itself to why Athena was much more accepted than Ares in terms of her role in warfare. She was seen more as a strategist or the, or the, the goddess of, of war strategy. Um, but she's highly... Uh, she's highly regarded. She's the protector of the city of Athens, and as such, the the Parthenon on the Acropolis is a temple uh, in her honour. It's the temple of of Athena, and uh, she plays a very very important part in the uh, in the works of Homer and the, the descriptions of the Trojan War. Not just because she was the third of those three goddesses that we've already mentioned. Um, including Hera and Aphrodite, who were uh, trying to uh, appeal to Paris. Uh, But she also played a a bit of a hands-on role during the Trojan War as well, um, um, helping the Greeks against the Trojans themselves. Her birth is a little bit of a mystery. If you like, and there's various accounts of her birth. She certainly Zeus is is seen as her father, with with different accounts saying that she had a different mother. But that's that's not all that untypical in 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 terms of these descriptions of the Olympian gods and goddesses. Uh, but uh, yes, it, we we hear that Athena was born from uh, the forehead of Zeus, which is which is extremely bizarre in itself. Hestia. Hestia was also a a daughter of of Cronus and Rhea, making her a sibling of Zeus and of his sister wife Hera, and his sister wife uh, Demeter, and also of Poseidon, who we've yet to mention. Uh, Hestia was the goddess of the home and uh, the hearth and of 
um, of domestication, that kind of thing. So she was uh, she was very important in terms of if if uh, if you had a new home, for example, you may make a sacrifice to Hestia um, in order to to give that home some kind of um, some kind of blessing. So Hestia was important for her role in the home. Poseidon. Poseidon himself also was a brother of Zeus, and uh, uh, according to, according to some legend, he was uh, he was uh, a, co- a competitor for the title of the protector of Athens uh, that was awarded to Athena, and uh, and he he was quite furious about not being chosen, and he's known for his calmness and and coupled with intense fury. Um, he is believed to have been part of the uh, the three brothers, uh, which included Zeus and Hades, who overthrew their father Cronus um, in order to take control of the of the of the known world as the gods. And uh, Poseidon would take control of the seas, and he would feature quite heavily in uh in Homer's works uh, particularly in controlling the sea and he would as with Athena he would also uh stand up for the Greeks against the Trojans Did anyone notice anything strange about that summary I told you that I was going to tell you the story of the of the 12 Olympian gods and goddesses and uh, for those um, very observant ones among you, you might have noticed that I told you the story of 13 Olympian gods and goddesses. So how can that be? Well, it's, it's actually because uh, Dionysus and um, Hestia are, are argued as being the 12th of the 12. And uh, in some cases you get Hesteris mentioned and in other cases you get Dionysus. And uh, so I thought I'd tell you about them both. No harm in that, is there? So uh, thank you very much for listening to that summary of the uh, 12 uh, Olympian gods and goddesses uh, who were actually 13. Now, a gentleman called Jim Mason wrote in this week who put, um, Hi Chris, I thought this might interest you. Check out this article from the New York Times, because I'm a subscriber, you'll be able to read it for free. Ancient footprints push back date of human arrival in the Americas. Human footprints found in New Mexico are about 23,000 years old, a study reported, suggesting that people may have arrived long before the ice ages. Glaciers melted. Uh, Very interesting, actually, yes. um, I... I tend to to sway towards this sort of migration into the Americas in two stages. Uh, firstly, um, migrating into the area of Beringia, the Beringian land bridge, um, initially, and then after the glaciers melted, then a migration into the Americas from ra- maybe around 15,000 years ago, 15,000, 16,000 years ago. But there does appear to be evidence uh, suggesting that there could have been migrations earlier and and I'll be very very interested in in how those uh, in how those investigations develop of course everyone's going to want to be the one to find this is this is the nature of archaeology everyone's going to want to be the one to find 
um, the the key uh, to new information to to an update of information. Um, however, the the scientific community must be allowed to accept it first before we can really um, say for definite. So, with caution, uh, hopefully, yes, we have found something there that will change our story of history. So, thank you very much for sharing that with me, Jim. Now then, I've made a little promise to myself to make sure that I do check my Facebook messages and and um, also my Instagram messages, of course. And uh, I did receive a couple of messages uh, this week. Uh, Mole Eliza wrote in to say, not sure if you see all these all that much, but just wanting to let you know that I am blown away by the content you are providing. I am quite slow to getting into podcasters. I find none hold my attention. Spotify gave me a pop-up recommendation while I was listening to the Our Fake History podcast, and I've been hooked ever since. I've been listening for around... Two weeks now, and I've already binged through the first 50-ish episodes. What you are doing is amazing. Um, Yeah, I suppose it is quite um, exciting if you are looking for such a podcast, as as I was uh, before making this podcast, um, to find that there is a a large catalogue of episodes uh, in a chronological order can uh, can be quite exciting. I suppose the only thing I hope is that for those people that do find the catalogue and get excited that they're not instantly put off by my voice or by the, my presentation style. Um, it looks like, Mole, that, you've, you've, uh, that you're enjoying the podcast and that's all I can hope for. So thank you so much for writing in and, and, and letting me know. It's really important that people do let me know that they're, uh, they're enjoying the work. Uh, Donna Nolan has written in saying, Chris, hi, I'm absolutely loving the podcast. What can I say? Your knowledge, your energy, your gift. Thank you. Just about to start volume two, Donna. Um, yeah, brilliant. I mean, uh, I suppose one of the most rewarding messages I received, Donna, was was from someone who, who said that they were only really interested in prehistory, but once they got to the end of volume one, they did go into volume two and and started sort of listening to areas of history that they might not have otherwise prioritised as something that they wanted to learn about, which uh, for me is probably the ultimate compliment there. So I really do hope that you do enjoy volume two. And, and once again, thank you so much for taking the time to write me that message. Moving on to reviews now, and uh, we've got uh, some, some reviews here. Um, Jane Lightfoot um, from the USA, broker owner TX, has, has written in saying, enjoying your podcast, thank you for your time and research it must take to put together, hopefully I will eventually catch up. Texas Grandma, who is fascinated by ancient history. Uh, Pam Craven, United States of America, has put perfect, the conversational tone of this podcast makes me feel like I'm just listening to someone in the conversation not being taught. Chris makes the topics interesting with just enough details to contextualise everything without getting into the minutiae. Um, have I pronounced that? Well, that's a very clever word you've used there. Let me, let me look that up. Minutiae. Give me a minute. The small, precise, or trivial details of something. The minutiae of everyday life. Minutiae. Or minutiae. Is that how you say it? I apologise. 
I had to, I had to look that one up. That's not a word that I've come across. Thank you. You've taught me a new word, Pam. Thank you. Um, um, Kike Charua from the United States of America has written, I love it. Dear Chris, for some time now, I wanted to rate your podcast and give you thanks for such an enthusiastic and informative podcast about our history. I'm from Uruguay, living now in Florida, US. I can't wait to uh, hear about the history of the Americas. Great work and thank you again. Jorge y Bastia. Um, finally, uh, we've got uh, Grow1994 from uh, Great Britain. Amazing, exactly what I was looking for. Definitely recommend this to anyone with an interest in history. Thank you to all of you um, who have written in and um, and you know given me those really kind reviews. I, I, I feel like I never read a bad word. I, I suppose I need to log back into YouTube really and start reading some of the comments under under my videos on YouTube. And uh, yeah, you get all sorts. Uh, in there, so I need to sort of bring myself back down to earth and read a few of them, I think. But um, look, really, thank you so much. Really, really kind words, and 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 to take the time to actually sort of write something is is um, is very, very much appreciated. So thank you so much. Uh, if any of you would like to support the project, you can. You can support the History of the World podcast. All you simply need to do is. Um, go to the History of the World podcast.com website and click on the Patreon link. When you pick, click on the Patreon link, you can sign up and make a monthly contribution towards uh, the podcast itself. And, and with those monthly contributions, I can buy resources, books, um, I can sign up for sort of web, web reports and that kind of thing. And and um, even invest in equipment that can make the podcast uh, bigger and better going forward. And um, if you uh, do make any kind of donation to the History of the World podcast, you become uh, a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. We always mention those new members each week, and this week we are happy to um, welcome uh, Sergi Shuinar. Uh, I apologise if I've, I've pronounced that wrong. I, I'm, I'm sure I, I do a weekly, um, a weekly good job of butchering people's names. So, uh, Serge Schwinard, that's probably that's probably more like it. Um, who is uh, is now a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Thank you so much and um, welcome aboard. Well, that's it for this week. Hopefully there'll be some news next week about the the future plans for the podcast. And um, I'm sure we'll be giving you some more spoilers about Volume 4, as is tradition. We may even be answering a listener question as well. So um, hopefully it'll be an interesting uh, episode next week, an unscripted episode once again. Uh, but until then, thanks very much for listening again this week and um, have a great week and be good. Come to the History of the World podcast.com and join all the other hot welders on our wide range of social media. Why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati? 
drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast.mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.